Hey, welcome to the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Hudock, where we have fun talking about the phenomenal and the fascinating. From angels to energy healing, from mystical places to mystical teachings, this is a place where we nerd out on the science of the soul. Welcome to another episode. My guest today is Dr. Joan Rosenberg. She is a licensed clinical psychologist, professor of graduate psychology at Pepperdine University in Los Angeles, a three times TEDx speaker, and author of her latest book, 90 Seconds to a Life You Love, How to Master Your Difficult Feelings to Cultivate Lasting Confidence, Resilience, and Authenticity. In this episode, we cover a lot of concepts in her book, like the eight most common unpleasant feelings and how we can really find strategies for handling them. We take a deeper look at anxiety and fear, the two kinds of vulnerability, the two parameters for healthy communication in partnership, what the fear of failure and the fear of success are really all about and a whole lot more that I really hope will support you in feeling more capable and resilient in your life. As always, take what you need, throw the rest away, or pass it on to somebody else who could use it, and may it serve you well. Thank you so much for being on this show. Truly, I'm not just saying this, I'm really honored to have you. Your book is a treasure, 90 Seconds to the Life You Love, and I found it incredibly helpful for me in the work I'm doing, and it resonates so much with spiritual psychology and the principles of spiritual psychology, which is one of the main reasons I'd like having you on this show so that you can extrapolate on all your wonderful uh, concepts here that I think are very encouraging for people that uh, are on the path of healing. Mm-hmm. With that, I thought I'd just start off with a beautiful quote from your book that I feel just sums up so much of what we're talking about here. And it's very potent. And you say, know that facing the truth within yourself is the only thing that puts you in the right relationship with yourself, leading to a sense of calm and inner peace, and is the only thing that can lead to love within and for yourself. The more you stay present to the truth of how your life was, the more you free yourself to create a life you love. That needs to go on a plaque somewhere on a wall. (laughs) Perhaps it's in your office already. Just a suggestion. I just love that. And and I feel like that's the heart of, of the book from my perspective. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes, I, I do remember. I mean, that it sort of came to me or through me. So uh, it was one of those moments. And I, I just try to furiously capture when when those things happen. So yeah. Yeah. did. So let's get into some of your concepts. There are many in this mm-hmm. wonderful book. And again, to reiterate, I find them incredibly encouraging for particularly when we are dealing with our triggers and the potential for rumination, you mentioned the 92nd concept. Right. Can you break that down for the listeners? Yeah. For me, it goes back to kind of where I started and the the way I started. And I I think it's helpful to have the context. Mm 
Yeah. The way I started was, I would say, with kind of two big questions percolating through my brain from my childhood into my probably started the second question kind of started into my 20s. And the, the, the first is because I was so shy and and got bullied and didn't feel like I belonged and didn't feel like I fit in. It was like all that all that kind of childhood adolescent stuff. Mm-hmm. It was um, I, I was like, I'd look over my peers and it was like they it seemed like they had something I didn't. Mm. And and from my perspective, it was confidence. So question number one for me is how does one develop confidence? It's like, what do they, what do they have that I don't? It's like, I want to do that. So that was, that was the first thing. The second thing for me, as I got into my professional life as a psychologist was that I would watch how people watch and listen, how people talked about their thoughts and their feelings. And, and what struck me was how difficult it was to deal with unpleasant feelings. Mm -hmm. So then the question for me was, okay, what makes it so difficult to deal with unpleasant feelings? So those two questions were kind of kind of percolating together for a long time. And and so then the 90 seconds piece goes with the at least that first question or that second question, I'm sorry, what makes it so difficult for people to deal with unpleasant feelings? And and as I was again getting deeper into my professional life, I was telling people to ride the wave, ride the wave, ride the wave. And in this case, I was encouraging them to ride emotional waves. Yeah. But I was doing that intuitively until the neuroscience research literature started to be kind of come out and began to kind of flourish. And what neuroscience concepts talked about, first of all, was that we are a one interconnected whole. The brain is always, the brain and mind are always feeding information to the body. The body is always feeding information back to the brain and the mind. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, that's important for us to keep in mind that we're not like this we're not separate beingness. We're one unified being. And that's really important because so many of us try to cut off from what we know. Right. So the second part of it was that that the next kind of big thing that, that struck me was it's like, oh, wait a minute. Most of us come to know what we feel emotionally through bodily sensation. Mm-hmm. Okay, body mind connected. Most of us come to know through bodily sensation. Okay, um, what are we talking about? Well, if I was embarrassed, you would see the red in my face. I would feel the heat yes. in that part of my body, and I'd go, "Oh, I'm I'm, emb- I'm feeling embarrassed." So the heat would be the bodily sensation. Okay. And the third part was um, understanding, and this was a really this comes from Dr. Jill Bolte Taylor. I just kind of integrated it in a particular way that that when a feeling gets triggered, there's a rush of biochemicals that actually activate those into the bloodstream that actually activate those bodily sensations. And they flush out of the bloodstream in roughly an upper limit of 90 seconds. Yes. Fascinating. Right. So, so, okay. So then what I'm asking people to do was actually ride short lived bodily sensation waves of feeling. I think and, of it like a contraction. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, some people have talked about that. Yes, that's oh. true. You can think of it as kind of like the length of a contraction. The uh, but not everybody's going to have that understanding, so we yes. So so then so then the but what the other piece that really dawned on me here is that it wasn't that we didn't want to feel the full range of what we felt emotionally. 
I think we do include pleasant and unpleasant because both it's informative. Right. But what we didn't want to experience was the bodily sensation, the uncomfortable bodily sensation that helped us know what we were feeling, especially when the feelings were unpleasant. So what people were trying to back away from when they checked out from unpleasant feelings was unpleasant bodily sensations. So then I could say, hey, we're talking about uh, 90 seconds. And to which one of my clients responded, well, that's less than half a song, mm-hmm. right? It's like, yeah. great. Then, so now when I can engage people, it's like, yeah, you can lean into unpleasant feelings, allow yourself to fully experience them because they're short-lived, they're transient, they don't stick around. And, and what you're trying to make your way through is the bodily sensation. So just hang tight, ride the wave. Yeah. Is it a bit of a bypass just off of what you're talking about? When you hear more in sort of the new age speak where, or in yogic speak, spiritual speak, that you're not your body. Mm-hmm. You're not your body. So don't be so attached to your feelings. But that might be difficult when it's like, well, I'm having anxiety and I feel like I'm my body. So that. Right. I have my. I have my own, I have my own thing around anxiety itself, but uh, I, cause I look at it in a very different way, but, <clears throat> but I would say um, I don't want people to do the bypass. Mm-hmm. I want people to notice what they're, I, I want them to notice what they're experiencing, but not get terribly attached to it. Right. Right. And, and I believe that because people go, well, why feel because feelings are a source of information just like thoughts are a source of information. And so what I want people to be able to do is to experience what they feel and integrate the feelings that they're experiencing with their capacity for thought and reason so that they can make decisions, they can express themselves, or they they can take some kind of an action. Mm -hmm. So there's actually value to what we're experiencing feeling-wise as long as it's integrated well with thought and reason. Mm -hmm. beautiful well to your point because I love your explanation of anxiety so that's a great segue and um, you say that uh, anxiety is really doubting one's emotional strength the doubt in your capacity to be capable and resourceful and I just love that I'd love for you to just uh, fill that out a bit okay so well there's many layers to this Yes. Um, so, because now you're touching on also my definition of emotional strength, which has to do with capability and resourcefulness. So in in my mind or my world, feeling capable has to do with being able to be present to eight, um, eight unpleasant feelings or eight difficult feelings. And that's that's really what I'm asking people to do, because what I have found is that when you have the sense of yourself as being able to handle these feelings, experience them, move through them, whatever you need to say to go, I got this, Mm -hmm. then you feel way more capable of handling life. Hmm. I thought just we'd insert here those eight uncommon, those eight common, excuse me, unpleasant feelings, sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, embarrassment, disappointment, frustration, and vulnerability, which you distilled your work down to from your many decades of clinical research and experience. Right. I, you know, I, I think I'll just kind of play devil's advocate here for a second. 
some people listening might say, well, where's fear, or anxiety, or unworthiness, or hatred, or jealousy in that list? Right. I'll throw that back to you. So, well, um, fear, I don't put there. For, I mean, I can, uh, do you want me to break it down each, each, because we're going to get parsed out here. So I'm, I'll follow <laughs> you. Know, your so well, maybe why, why these eight? Maybe okay. So there. why these eight? Are because to me they are the most common everyday spontaneous reactions to things not turning out the way you want okay. or the way you believe they need to turn out. So you can think on a on a given week or month, the times that you might have felt disappointed or sad or frustrated or angry or it's just the it's the everyday quality of them. Yes. So I'm not and fear. We go back to fear for a moment. I like to use psychology's definition and psychology's definition is that fear is danger in the moment right now. So my point of view is that people use the words anxiety and people misuse and overuse the words anxiety and fear quite a bit because they're talking about being fearful in situations where they are not in danger in the moment right now. You're in danger in the moment right now. Go be fearful. I want you to be fearful. It's right. your reaction, fight, fight, flight, fate, or freeze, right? Go, go do it. Um, so I, that false evidence appearing real, mm -hmm. that's, is that fear? That's not really fear. That's, that's more not fear. It's not, I don't, I don't, I don't, and I don't go with that definition either. Right. I go with that. I, I go with danger in the moment right now. And yeah. fear is not in there because I, it, and when you use words like fear, then you activate the state within you. It has its own kind of vibrational match to your mm -hmm. beingness. No, I love that. That's great. So, so, so that's fear. Now that'll take us right to anxiety. Mm -hmm. So if we're not going to use fear. Then the then the next most obvious word to use would be anxiety. Yes. And what, so what's anxiety? What does psychology say about anxiety? Well, anxiety is diffuse concern or diffuse apprehension of some kind of negative event happening in the future. Okay. It fits. Great. Awesome. Except mm -hmm. if what I found is that if I would have 10 people in a room and I asked those 10 people what anxiety meant to them, I would get eight to 10 different answers. Yes. So it had no use for me. So if somebody says, well, I'm anxious, it's like, great. I have no idea what that means to you. Right. But but people use it and they toss it out as if it's candy, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's like it just gets so used, but it has no almost no meaning to me. Mm -hmm. So what I found is that it really is then a distraction from the eight unpleasant feelings. Huh. So so again so now we can bridge capability and. The eight feelings, capability, feeling capable in the world is being able to handle the eight unpleasant feelings. If you're not, if you'll get anxious because you don't feel capable because you're not handling the eight, you don't see yourself as being able to handle the eight unpleasant feelings. And the core and, piece is the eight. Yeah. Ugh, that's great. Is this making sense? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I'm kind of getting pulled to this question of why do we feel so incapable of handling these feelings? I guess it would be a personal reason for each person, depending on their curriculum and, and their life experience, life experience. Yeah. 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 
I'm just curious, based on your expertise, why is unworthiness so a thing in our world? I mean, did the caveman have unworthiness? No, well, I, you know what? Again, I have, I have my own kind of unique twist on those kinds of things. Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of unworthiness mm-hmm, because uh, because it's to me it's harsh self criticism. Okay. Yeah. And harsh self-criticism is a distraction from the eight unpleasant feelings, just like using the word anxiety is a distraction mm. from the eight unpleasant feelings. So I think I, in fact, I just had a conversation a couple of days ago with, with a group of people and said, what if we actually, as human beings, didn't get to decide whether we were worthy or deserving? That was above our pay grade. Yeah. And what would happen for you if you realized you didn't have to earn it and you just started living your life from the premise that you were already worthy, deserving, adequate, enough, good enough, and worthwhile? What what would happen in your life if you just allowed yourself to live from that place and understand that there was nothing to earn. Mm. Sounds like the law of positive assumption, which could really work in your favor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think of this pastor, Joel Osteen, Mm -hmm. who I used to listen to quite often just because he's so positive. And, um, you know, I'm in my car listening to Sirius Radio and I just kind of scroll land on him. I go, this is great. And uh, he had a whole talk one day on this very subject. He said, I just decided that I would wake up my life. I decided one day that I would just assume that everyone likes me because he was so insecure because he was in the footsteps of his father who had this great success. And and, uh, he went from being a cameraman to being put you know, front and center. And he said, you know, I can't live my life feeling unworthy. So I'm just going to assume that everybody loves me and everywhere I go, people are excited to see me. They're excited to hear me. They're excited to have me. And that changed his life. And here we are. (laughs) Exactly. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to answer the caveman question, but But I can suggest that it's actually harsh self-criticism. And from that standpoint, it's actually a thought hijack of unpleasant feelings. Mm -hmm. That makes so much sense. And it simplifies things quite a bit because like, no, 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 you're actually just playing a little game with yourself and here's what's really going on. So let's stop that. Yeah. In fact, somebody said, well, how do you get there? How do you how do you get to to that? It's like well, there's no there to get to, right? Yeah. There's it's, you're not you're not you don't have to traverse a distance mm-hmm. to to get to that. You just make a different decision. Yeah, you do differently. And, and as soon as you make a different decision, you're you can start to practice thinking from that perspective and living from that perspective. And why is it so hard for people to just do differently? Well, because some of that will take practice. Yeah. And so it's the repetition that is the muscle that the repetition becomes the muscle we have to use to in to embed a new learning mm. or a new way of being. I, 
I heard a while back that narcissism, because it was so pervasive in our society, and when something becomes so pervasive in our society as like a commonality, it's actually taken out of the DSM because it's considered like normalized. Is narcissism, A, is that true? And B, is narcissism so normalized now as a sort of non-condition that- Oh, it's no, it's still, it's still in the DSM. <laughs> it's still in the DSM. So, it is. Yeah, is yeah. it taken oh, yeah. out of the DSM temporarily and then put no. back in? No. Okay. No. They didn't know what they were talking about. All right. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. Just because okay. something is common doesn't mean it gets removed as a problem. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah. yeah. I didn't think so, but I thought you'd be a good person to ask. Yeah, no, it's it's still very much in the DSM. Can you talk about the two kinds of vulnerability, which I thought was really, really interesting. And I just feel like people, people get, someone gave me a compliment the other day and I just, I, I kind of chuckled. I mean, I was very touched, but also I was in the middle of reading your book and it made me think of this because she said, you know, you are so real. Uh -huh. and I just love that you're real. And, and it made me go to these two kinds of vulnerability and being authentic. And it, it's like today it's a compliment when someone says you're real because I don't know, being real is such an uncommon thing now in our society that vulnerability or authenticity. Right, is right. You're allowing, right. You're allowing yourself to be more transparent and more emotionally accessible. Mm -hmm. and, and and people don't necessarily do that with ease. So part, part of it, again, for me is, uh, again, so vulnerability brought by and large, the way I look at vulnerability is the it's the thought, kind of the thought and sense or thought, emotional uh, reaction and kind of sense that you could get hurt. And, um, and I broke it down into what I call conscious vulnerability and non-conscious vulnerability. And non-conscious vulnerability to me is the vulnerability that we all feel 24 seven, just like, uh, just like every animal in the animal kingdom that has to have a way to survive. We all, we're, we're all approaching life from uh, some place of survival and that any at any point in time, any one of us could get, uh, it could have an experience or get news that somebody in our world has been hurt or some, it's something that's changed our world. Mm -hmm. And, and that, so in essence, we're all vulnerable 24 seven. The, the key here is that we don't maintain a strong awareness or a high level of awareness about it. Mm -hmm. And by way of example, for me, when COVID's first kind of hit our consciousness and people were dying and the whole thing, what I think happened, I don't think of it as a time of high anxiety. I think of it, I think of it as a time of profound vulnerability, awareness of vulnerability, but right. people weren't aware that they were aware of vulnerability. Right. Right. So underneath, so I wouldn't use it. I wouldn't use the word anxiety. I would use vulnerability. All of a sudden, people had an awareness of the sense that they could get hurt. Yes. But they didn't have the language 
to say, I'm feeling vulnerable and I'm more aware of my vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yes, that's true. So, but that's non, to me, that's non-conscious vulnerability. It's again, the sense that, that basically the non-conscious vulnerability is we're all vulnerable 24 seven and that, that we could get hurt theoretically at any point in time. We can't change that. We can manage it. And we can, when we maintain a low level of awareness about it, we become more, um, more intentional about life choices. So if I'm aware of a certain age or I, there's an illness or there's whatever, then, and I'm, uh, I'm more in touch with my vulnerability, or I simply go, you know what? I have a limited amount of time. I want to make the best use of this time. Yes. Then now I can be more intentional about making choices in my life. How do I want to spend my precious time? Yes. Why am I doing that? It's because I'm maintaining a love, just a, enough of a level of awareness that I'm a vulnerable human being. And I'm maintaining awareness about that non-conscious vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does. It just makes me think of th- so many problems arise because we're unaware of the vulnerability. Of, well, I was going to say, yes, of our unawarenesses. Uh, that's true too. That's true too. I I'm think sorry, I didn't know I hurt you. I'm sorry. I didn't know I said that to you. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say it. I didn't know I was being rude to you. You know, it's like, well, you were, and you're not aware and please don't do that again. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, so that's the non-conscious vulnerability. Conscious vulnerability is the vulnerability I choose into mm-hmm. so you doing a podcast, me being a podcast guest. Yes. That's conscious vulnerability. We're putting ourselves out there. And and saying, you know what, I, I there may be information we can both share. Yes. And so, but anybody can come along and going, well, that's really stupid, or how embarrassing, or how this, or how that, or what, whatever. And yeah. but then, what are we doing? We're basically saying, I'm okay being vulnerable because I can handle the other seven feelings. Right. Right. And conscious vulnerability is basically choosing into vulnerability. And when we choose vulnerability, we are actually, in my mind, at our greatest strength. Mm-hmm. Just very Brene Brown, that our greatest strength is our vulnerability. We're at our greatest strength. Yeah. Um, and we're basically internally saying to ourselves, I got this. If I get embarrassed or I get, how are we? how do we get hurt? It's, it's the other seven feelings. Mm-hmm. I get disappointed, I get angry, I get sad, I get embarrassed, I get frustrated. Okay. If I if internally I go, I can handle those, then I can go choose to be consciously vulnerable wherever I want to. I don't know why this is coming to my mind, but it's making me laugh inside. Or I think of a craving and I think, well, if you have a food craving, I've heard that it can't last more than 15 minutes. So it's like, well, if you ride your feelings that are really only 90 seconds, that are actually have more weight than a craving for like sugar or whatever it is. That's actually easier <laughs> and holding on for 15 minutes so that you can distract yourself enough, go for a walk, do something different so that you don't go and have a bite of whatever feed into that craving and take partake in that hit of, 
whatever or whatever that thing is that you're trying to overcome. Right. Again, very hopeful and uh, encouraging. I, I would like to ask you, how do you get people, a couple, to listen to one another? When I was studying spiritual psychology, we spent, uh, you know, we worked on all these principles for, for two years. And the first one that we just really drilled home time and time again, which was so eye-opening for me, was this method, this principle of heart-centered listening. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was so, again, eye-opening for me. It was a really, uh, provided such a deeper awareness for me of how much a, we're all the same. We all want to be heard. And in relationships, intimate relationships, a lot of people, when there's conflict, they just don't feel like they're heard. They don't feel like the person has their back. They don't feel like they're heard. And what they're fighting about is not really what they're fighting about. It's like how they relate to the issues, the issue, right? And so I think of this thing, heart-centered listening, and and how that can dissolve so many of these potential um, discord situations and misunderstandings. How do you get people to listen? Well, the first thing I start with actually are, is two guidelines or two premises, if you will. Mm-hmm. And the they are safety, promoting safety. Okay. And the other is coming from a place that is kind and well-intentioned. No inflammatory speech. Right. So how does, in relationship, from my point of view, the best way that one can feel safe in a relationship is having the experience that the other person is coming from a kind and well-intentioned place. Yes. And when that's not present, my point of view as well is that relationships will always be at some measure of strain in the absence of kind and well-intentioned words and behavior. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that I start to do with a couple is to talk about those two parameters for the relationship. I see this a lot with couples I work with, particularly, but well, it happens with men too, but more so with women where they just fold their hands and they shake their head and they're just showing their unapproval. Uh-huh. They're grading their partner as they speak uh-huh. by nonverbal, negative nonverbal communication. Okay. That certainly doesn't set up safety. Well, then, so then that would be called out as something that creates an experience of lack of safety in the relationship. Yes. For sure. So, so then the heart-centered listening for me, there's a spot in the in the chapter seven towards the end of the that chapter, the speaking yeah. chapter, where I talk about attunement skills, mm-hmm. and, and the one the one to me that is the most magical and the most effective is, of course, reflection of feeling, and that would be the heart-centered listening. And, and it would be, it basically would be conveying that back to you that I have some sense of understanding about the feeling or feelings that you're experiencing. Yeah. I was taught what I'm hearing is, is that accurate? Uh, yeah, you can use language like that. Sure. 
Um, I and and what I tend to do is to recommend that it's stated um, more. It's not stated in a question. It's stated more in a statement. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned just something to kind of throw in here that high quality conversation is one where you respond to your feelings first. Correct. So the so that when there's conflict, uh, especially when there's conflict or there's distress mm -hmm. and someone is seeking some manner of soothing, then my experience is if you can pay attention to the, the actual feelings that are being stated or the, <clears throat> the, um, I have a word for it, the kind of the, the quality of the, or the vibe, the kind of feeling vibe that's coming across. Mm-hmm. Then you, as the listener, the first task for you to do is to respond to the to what you're noticing by way of the feeling, mm -hmm. because when you do that, my experience is that somebody's nervous system calms down. Ah. So, so if if you're you know in some measure of distress, and I and I say you know something going on, and you go, yeah, it's just a really tough day at work, and no, 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 and. And I say to you, wow, I can I can hear how frustrated and, and, and frustrated that situation was for you, or you know how upsetting, or it's kind of upset your balance, or um, you know maybe it's even it was embarrassing and sad, or and and you go, yeah, now you're right in that sweet spot of being heard and understood, and yeah. and your nervous system just goes, ooh, it just calms right down, hmm. and you can get to the um, the nuances of solving the problem if there's a problem to be solved mm. what i'm hearing in that is the power of acknowledgement mm -hmm. wow you're really acknowledging something that maybe i didn't even know i was experiencing that is worthy of acknowledgement so i can move into process with it yeah that's great in your research do you find that the fear of failure and the fear of success they stem from the same issue. Uh, well, for me, it's all again. I'm going to ditch the word fear. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Right. So, so people talk about fear of failure, but yeah. it, that that's a combo that makes no sense in my brain. Okay. Uh, danger in the moment, right now, of failure. Uh, right. <laughs> it's like just insert danger in the moment right yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> failure. Or a success. Fear of failure, danger in the moment right now, a failure. Uh, it's. But that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, of course, right? So here's here's my thing about failure. Failure, the thing around failure and success are basically the same thing. It's all about risk taking. Okay. And what? Uh, and you know, so that the if if I break it down, and I I did this in the book. So the way I break it down is okay. So what's failure? Failure is not having achieved what I set out to achieve. Um, or. It's not having achieved what I set out to achieve, especially the first time I set out to achieve it. But that's how we would look at failure, right? That something didn't work out. Yeah. But what I find is that people, it's not, it's, it's about risk-taking to learn a skill or to go have a different new experience. And people won't do the activity or what it takes to go do that because not because of the activity in and of itself, but because they don't want to deal with the unpleasant feelings that are likely to result if it does not work out. Meaning 
that failure in my world is difficulty tolerating the unpleasant feelings that might get elicited if you don't achieve what you set out to achieve, especially the first time you set out to achieve it. We're back to the eight unpleasant feelings. Keep circling back. Yes. Did you come up, this is great. It, it brings me to the part in your book uh, where you talk about bad emotional math, how you found right. that people often equate thoughts or beliefs that don't fit together. And to me, or I mean, this is bad emotional math, like, oh, this didn't go the way I wanted, therefore I'm a failure. Right, right. So yeah, absolutely. So I have failed at something. Yeah is very different from I'm a failure. That is bad emotional math. Those two things are not the same. Yeah. I I have failed at something, meaning it didn't work out, just means I failed at something. It means nothing about you as a person. Yes. Gosh, I wish my dad heard this when he was alive. Could have kept him alive. My dad ran for Congress three times. Mm. got 48 and 49 percent of the vote and each time and i mean it was just like how close can you get and i have to give him credit because the guy kept going back you know it's like i think of a good friend of mine one of my best friends who had six miscarriages and she has two beautiful children and she just kept going and i i just go wow now that is resilience to me because Because you're willing to deal with the disappointment or whatever feelings get evoked in pursuit of the thing that is of value to you. Yes. I'm willing to have another miscarriage in the hopes that it will not be a miscarriage. Exactly. Yeah. And then I'll have a healthy child to come out of this. Yeah. And I'm going to keep going until that happens. Yeah. So that's a positive end because it worked out in her seventh pregnancy. But then I think of my father and, you know, he died at 62 and he felt like he was a failure. Meanwhile, he had, he was a, a rocket scientist. He was top graduate at the top of his class at Georgetown Law. He flew airplanes. He was a photographer. He had a successful marriage. He, you know, he, he was. There's no, fail, there's no failure there's there. No failure. There's no and failure there. Yes. And it just breaks my heart because I. Right. He didn't get a he didn't get a congressional seat, but that it says nothing about him as a person. Yeah, well, it makes me think. Well, it's like we talk about how the influence of our parents, and just to kind of go a little deeper with this as a reflection, his my mother would always say that she remembers when they when she first met his parents. the The parents would say, "Oh, Robbie's going to be president of the United States." And so they could see that in his consciousness. And he thought, okay, I need to be president of the United States. Who knows if it was even his dream? Mm. I, I, who knows? Probably not, because he, he was really a, a, um, a scientist. I mean, he loved science. And uh, he could figure out like a trigonometry problem in less than 90 seconds. Cool. <laughs> so like, what? But, but, you know, as we're talking about this, it's like, well, that's, that's the setup that was given to him. And then, oh, I can't meet this, this irrational, you know, it's like, oh, my parents say I'm going to be in the MLB. Well, how many make it to the MLB? Less than 1%, right? Then if I don't make it in the MLB, I'm a, I'm a failure. I'm a loser. I'm, life is not worth living. 
All untrue, right? Yeah. And it just goes, how many, how many people do we know that are running that, that hallucination on themselves? Too many, too many. Yeah, I mean, obviously, countless millions. Yeah, right. countless millions that could really afford reading your book and understanding bad emotional math. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, let's talk a bit about distracting away from our emotions. Okay. Some clients that I've worked with and always found it so interesting. And now we've moved on from that. But the first time I worked with somebody with this, it was the first time I'd ever worked with somebody with this and it wasn't familiar to me. And she said, I can't get myself to cry. I haven't cried in 10 years. And then of course, the flip side of that, the other end of the spectrum, I should say, and you talk about this in your book, where people that have sort of no boundaries with their feelings and they feel everything. Can you talk a little bit about those two um, states and how you navigate people through that? How you but, With the first one, and I've been around people who have declared that they have not cried for however many years, that is... I would say comes out of a lot of life history and and probably some some decision making meaning that someone could have grown up in a hostile uh, or abusive or mean environment and said I'm I'm not going to behave like that and I'm not going to let this affect me. Right. Uh, someone could have grown up in a sterile environment where there's no expression of feeling and so that they shut down on on expression someone could have grown up in a situation where they were very much feelers but that but that they were discouraged from it and were told that what they were feeling wasn't what they were feeling or they were told to shut down on it or whatever and so that it, it and whatever life experiences that became too painful and they go I'm going to I'm going to shut this out right so uh, so at some point, there's a, a also, I think, a decision that gets made. So where someone has enough painful experiences, difficult life experiences, and then makes it worse by making a decision that I think is equally as bad or worse than the initial ex difficult life experiences, which is, I'm not going to let myself feel. I'm yeah. not, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to let myself go there. So, so now we have a decision that literally in my mind is taking away one's experience of aliveness. Mm, well said. So when we shut down or attempt to shut down on our unpleasant feeling states, we're deadening and numbing ourselves and we're, we're muffling our own sense of aliveness. So, so, and so that the, when, and that's part of the cry and I'm not going to cry piece, right? right? Other side of, uh, I feel too much. Again, could be growing up in any one of those environments, same thing, but, but you don't, one doesn't necessarily learn to set boundaries. Uh, and, and doesn't then speak up about what's needed or not needed or what's thought or not thought or what's felt or, and so that people are not giving expression to thought, feeling, and need so that they're not setting clear enough boundary and are absorbing other people's experiences. 
Um, and the second part of that then has gets into kind of, and you'd be more familiar with this, gets into some of the energetics mm-hmm. of of feeling, and that uh, that you're sensing somebody might be highly attuned or what we might call a highly sensitive person, and they're they're very attuned to the energy around them, but then don't know how to filter what's yours from what's mine. Right. I can think of uh, for myself, for an example, I have this, I have this uh, ability. And, I, and from my perspective, I feel like, well, again, we're, we're all coming from the same thing. We all believe the same. We just have different life experiences, but we're all psychic. We all are, have self-healing potential. We can all awaken our own inner pharmacopoeia. We're all healers. You know, the, the healer, the guru lies within. So um, with that said, growing up, I had this ability and I didn't really know it, fully understand it for obvious reasons when I was a child, but I could see people's energy fields and I thought everybody saw people's energy fields and I could see um, uh, what I perceived as tumors in people's energy fields and they would always be black um, and they would extend out about six feet. And now, you know, 40 years later, I realize, oh, that's the biofield. I'm picking up stuff in this diffusive electromagnetic field that is like a materiality. It's the plasma and it's picking that up. And so when I was studying biofield tuning, one of my mentors, of course, Eileen Cusick, I said, you know, I could, I, I said in sort of this round table discussion one day, I said, I feel, I remember I could walk down New York City or walk down the street in New York City and I could just, like scan each person and I could tell them exactly what was going on with their body. And I had this game with friends where I'd say, I can tell you exactly what you had for lunch. And they're like, how did you know that? And it was like, that's in your field. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was 20 years old. So I told her this and she said, yeah, don't do that. And she just was very matter of fact about it. And she said, it's intrusive for you to look into people's fields. And she's right. And that really stuck with me. And it's this idea of setting healthy boundaries where it's, it's. I say to people when they want to, um, when they don't have boundaries, that from a spiritual perspective, do you, it's not your responsibility, you're robbing someone. I, I actually flip it and I say, to kind of shake what needs to be shook in their consciousness. And I'll say, it's actually selfish of you to do that. Because when they want to, when they want to kind of take on someone else's feeling or suffering, and I say it's actually selfish of you to do that because you're robbing them of the dignity of their own process. And spiritually, if we want to go there or energetically, you're taking on unnecessary karma for yourself. Do you want to do that? And then they go, oh, okay. So that was a part of my journey where I said, well, okay, I'm not going to be, I don't want to be intrusive. I don't want to create more karma for myself. And uh, it doesn't feel good to just kind of bleed your, your walls of your biofield out to the world. So Mm. that, why are we doing that? Are we doing that so that we can get more love? Everything we're doing, we're doing to get something. Mm. So that's kind of where my, Mm -hmm. my brain. Wow. That's actually powerful. Yeah. Well, let's go into some strategies uh, just to kind of round out this wonderful talk. Can you, 
break down, I really talk about any strategies you'd like to that you think would be great for the listeners. And perhaps one that came to my mind is six steps to reclaiming your personal power. And if I can add to that, because I find so many people have anxiety as a descriptive, is there a strategy you have for anxiety? Oh yeah, I've tried multiple. <laughs> multiple, multiple. Yeah, no. So part of it. So step one, we can go back to what you started with. Yeah. This idea that um, you don't feel capable in the world. So the first thing, the first thing to understand around anxiety is that it's a distraction from or a cover, like an umbrella over the eight unpleasant feelings. So the first thing that you do when you say I'm feeling well, the, well, actually, what I would say to you is ditch the word anxiety and fear. Stop and, using it. And, Stop replace it and replace it with as uh, if you're feeling vulnerable, yeah. um, then say that you feel vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, so for instance, if I'm going to go do a speaking engagement, says, well, aren't you anxious? It's like, no, I feel vulnerable. Mm, I love that. Right. So because the more specific you get, the calmer you get yeah. with the, with the feeling state. Uh, and if it's not vulnerability, then it's likely to be one or more of the other seven feelings. So the first thing to do with anxiety is go, all right, what what of the eight feelings am I really feeling? And let me ditch using the word anxiety. Mm. The second is to, so it's because it's a cover for the eight unpleasant feelings. The second is to uh, think of anxiety as an attempt to have mastery in the present over a feeling that has not yet occurred. Can you say that again? It's an attempt to have mastery okay. over a feeling that has not yet occurred. Mm. All right. And why are you anxious and worrying? Because you don't see yourself as being able to handle the feelings, the eight unpleasant feelings at the time when the event actually occurs. So you'll worry about it ahead of time as if that's going to make a difference and you're trying to have mastery in the moment now before the doggone thing even happens. The third way I think about it is that it is um, it is unexperienced and unexpressed feeling. Unexperienced. So anxiety, anxiety is unex, unexperienced. So I'm not letting myself experience what I'm truly experiencing. And if I am actually allowing myself to experience it, I'm not expressing it. Yeah. So because I'll watch in both situations where if you don't allow yourself to experience the genuine feeling, you will describe yourself as anxious. And so if I can get you to the real feeling, then the next step is, are you actually expressing what needs to be expressed? Mm-hmm. And I tell a story about Sally and Jane in the in the book about what happened when both of them actually allowed themselves to experience and express. Yes, um, because you change as a human being profoundly, especially when you can speak with ease. Um, sure. So, so allowing yourself to just actually experience the truth of what you feel, and also to express what you feel, um, diminishes the anxiety quite rapidly. Powerful. You want to talk a little bit about the six steps to reclaiming your personal power? I don't know that I can remember each one in order, but um, the essence here has to do with uh, worrying about what other people think of you. Yeah, that's a big one. It's a it's a very big one, and 
the and I think that the those six steps are associated with that particular. Uh, the, the, those six steps are, are, are attached to that particular difficulty, mm-hmm. uh, life challenge or whatever. But again, the part of the way I start is to think about worrying about what other people think of you as simply a distraction from feeling vulnerable. Right. It comes right back down. We're going to go right back to those eight feelings every time. Yeah. I mean, so, really, you just bring it down to the sweet reduction sauce that's very simplified when you look at it. That's why I keep on coming back. You man, you can master these eight feelings. You can go pursue anything you want in life. Ooh. Yeah. No doubt. So so it's under so that's the first thing is understand this is a distraction from vulnerability. So what what does it take then? It takes you being able to handle the other seven feelings because vulnerability is one of the eight. How do you handle vulnerability? You'd be able to handle the other seven. And and some of some other parts of it are having an awareness that you're projecting that what you think other people are thinking about you is not really what's going on. In fact, I, the question I'd love to ask is, um, if you're worried about what other people are thinking about you, or if you, I, I can't even get it right here, they, then it's, um, what are the chances, one, that they're actually thinking about you? Yes. And, and the second part of that is, what are the chances that they are actually thinking the exact thought you think they're thinking about you? Yes, you talk about this in your mind reading. Right. So it's, yeah. So it's, it, so it, you want to move away from that. And then the part of the way you come back to the present, you want to bring yourself back to the present moment. And you want to ask yourself, what then, okay, if I'm projecting it onto someone else, they're not really thinking it. In fact, they're probably worried about what they're, you're thinking about them. Then bring it back right into the present moment and, and ask yourself, what is it that I think, feel, need, know uh or need or know right now and just bring it right back into the present moment as a way to be in charge of what's happening it's like we can just live in our head all day long (laughs) but we want to live in our head in a good way not in a way that's destructive to us yeah not a battlefield but a paradise yeah you know i just i just said i mean i was working with a client just before we got on and one of the things i said to her i said that because I was trying to pull her back to the feeling and away from judgment and criticism, mm-hmm. self-criticism. I said, judgment and self-criticism will take you to the dark, to a dark place. Just feeling unpleasantness won't. Mm, that's powerful. Yeah. Judgment and criticism took my dad to his grave. I, well, that may have happened. Yeah, I get that. So... Yeah, that's powerful. Real quick, what would you say with, and again, I know this is sort of a, a very general kind of blanket question, but what do you say with people that are suffering with addiction, substance abuse, and they use to not feel or to tap out? How do you help with that? What can you offer around that? The I think the first thing is to understand that uh, to me I I it's it's funny I was calling addictions uh, diseases of isolation before I heard Gabor Mate, oh, and wow. and yeah. and I think of I think of addictions as diseases of isolation and basically diseases of disconnection. 
Well, that's interesting you say that because the people I work with that do have addiction, they all have a commonality of non-communication, of, of, um, of um, kind of ghosting their, their world, the people around them. You won't hear from them. They'll just tap out. Right, right. Exactly. So, so it, I, I first drew a diagram close to 40, 30 or 40 years ago, 40 years ago. And the diagram, was, one side of it was knowing what you know, and the other side was trying not to know what you know. Okay. The moment you distract from the present moment, addictions being a way of doing that, mm-hmm. you are down the path of trying not to know what you know. Right, right, right. Very disempowering. And it leads to, over, over a long period of time, or shorter, depending on how damaging the uh, drug uses or substance uses, the it leads to what I call soulful depression. How and is it soul? Soulful depression. It's to me, it's the disconnection of the self from the self. Okay. Wow. Well, yeah. And that's when people will start to describe feeling numb or depressed or dissociated or disconnected or, and that to me is, it's not, it is a kind of depression, but it's not. And I think a lot of people seek treatment for that kind of depression and from a clinically depressed state, but it's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. They're, what people need to do is to be able to come back to being more alive again. Yeah, I and, think some people I know that to your point, when you're talking about that, it brings to mind someone I've been working with for some years now, and he has that going on and it's gotten much better, but he will fantasize about, you know, the other side instead of being alive here and now. Right. So it's a, just so think of, think of another way to think of a, a addiction is that it's a distraction from aliveness. Yeah, sure. So many opportunities here in your book. Is there anything else you want to leave for the listeners that you think would be of value? You've left so much, so I don't mean to put you on the spot with pulling even more out of your wisdom warehouse, (laughs) (laughs) which is apparently endless. We could talk for... I'm happy to do that. Um, The... uh, Happy to do a follow-on if you'd like. The well, I guess the last thing I would say is uh, the I would say two things. One is how important it is to end your use of harsh self-criticism. One's use of harsh self-criticism, and on the flip side, how important it is to take in compliments. Mm. I think of something again, just to throw it back to my world, I, one of the things we learned again in the school of spiritual psychology was the use of prizing that you prize someone first because it disarms them just to prize them can open the door to so much. And, uh, you share that. It makes me think of that and to allow yourself to be prized, Mm -hmm. to see yourself as loved which I find is very different energy than saying, I love you, opposed to when someone says, oh, hey, Diane, you're, you're loved. What? Oh, 
right i am loved very different energy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. wow yeah. well thank you so much joan this is this has been exquisite your book is again exquisite a treasure for i believe anyone that wants to really go deeper with um navigating life so 90 seconds to a life you love you have a lot of other works you can um do you want to leave your info here and i'll have it also in the show notes sure i mean uh people can find me on drjohnrosenberg.com or uh they can find me using basically that same handle on most of the other social media areas so whether it's twitter or instagram or other places it's usually drjohnrosenberg.com or drjohnrosenberg would be the what i use fantastic findable all over awesome and uh i might hit you up on the follow-up so <laughs> i'm all in i'm all in i i you can tell i love talking about this stuff because i that the beauty here's the beauty for me um i have i have this long-held belief that if somebody has the capacity to think then they have the capacity to change mm -hmm. and the interesting thing about my work is that it's so practical that the moment you hear something new if you play with it you can change that quickly so you can actually in my mind transform yourself at the speed of thought mm. which to me is the speed of light <laughs> which is pretty great yeah. on a planet <laughs> that's yeah. operating in the third dimensional reality exactly so so, so the, then the question becomes how how long does it take to think a thought right how fast does it take to really transform there you go so, mm. so the possibility is there so right. i'm just inviting people into the possibility mm. thank you for the invitation this is great Hey guys, thanks for checking out the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, check out more by subscribing on your favorite platform or go to spiritualgeekout.com.